You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity and politics, with Ali Ahmed. Canada is generally hailed as a hallmark of pluralism, but on June 16, 2019, the CAQ government in Quebec passed a law barring public school teachers, police officers and other civil servants in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols while at work. The Lassité, or Secularism Law, also includes rules requiring citizens to show their faces when receiving public services. The law already faces legal challenges and may not survive them, but even if it doesn't, it joins a number of attempts by the Quebec government to curb religious freedom in a way that appears to target Muslim women. Episode 2 of the podcast features Canadian lawyer Ranjan Agarwal, a partner at Bennett Jones Law Firm who specializes in complex litigation, including constitutional matters. He is also an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto and a recipient of the 2019 Lexbert Zenith Award, celebrating change agents in law. I spoke to Ranjan prior to the passing of the Quebec law to understand the freedom of religion and its limits. Ranjan, let's assume you've established your belief in a religion. A decent minority of Muslim women in North America wear hijab, which only covers the hair but very few wear a niqab or a burqa, which covers the face. So someone can argue, well, Islam doesn't actually require women to cover their faces, considering most of them don't do it. What's the legal test here? The bar or the test for a religious freedom is relatively low. Our Supreme Court, in a case called Syndicat and Amsalim, said that freedom of religion consists of a freedom to undertake practices and harbor beliefs. And ultimately, the way in which you test that is the claimant has to demonstrate that he or she sincerely believes or is sincerely undertaking in order to connect with the divine as a function of his or her spiritual faith, irrespective of whether the particular practice or belief is required by religious dogma or is in conformity with the position of religious officials. So it's a personal or subjective understanding of freedom of religion. You don't need to show an objective religious obligation or requirement or precept. So in my view, if the claimant came forward and said, I sincerely had belief that my religion requires me to wear the burqa, that will be sufficient to meet the test, I'm repeating myself, but of a sincerely held religious belief under Canadian law. The court is not going to engage in an examination of how many people wear the burqa, is the burqa prescribed by a particular religion or the faith leaders in that religion. Ultimately, it's going to take a look at the personal or subjective belief. And I should say this, it's not going to be concerned if the claimant has come in and out of the religion. For example, if the claimant a few years ago, didn't wear a burqa, started wearing it, stopped wearing it, and started wearing it again. The court's not going to be concerned with whether she is dogmatic about her faith. What it is going to be concerned about is that when she arrives at the court to make her claim, does she have that sincerely held religious belief? So there are still some decent arguments to want to see someone's face when rendering public services. Two common ones are verification of identity and security. But seeing a person's face would also help doctors, social services, and police to do their jobs. Are these kinds of justifications good enough to require someone to show their face? I would have said, again, sort of plain speaking, no, probably not sufficient. But there is a case from our Supreme Court that is instructive. It's a case from 2009, Alberta and Hatterian Brethren of Wilson Colony. It's generally considered an outlier in the religious freedom jurisprudence. But in that case... Alberta required all persons who drove motor vehicles to hold a driver's license, and each license has a photograph of the license holder. There are approximately 200 licenses in Alberta that are held by members of the Hatterian Brethren colony. This is a colony who maintain a rural 
communal lifestyle, including in the carrying on of their commercial activities. They believe that their second commandment prohibits them from having their photograph willingly taken. And so they objected to having their photographs taken on religious grounds. The province responded in an attempt to accommodate their religion by proposing two measures. First, that the photograph would only be used in the facial recognition data bank that was maintained by the province. The Hatterian brethren rejected that, asking that no photograph be taken and that a non-photo license be issued to them and marked not to be used for identification purposes. The Supreme Court of Canada ultimately held that even though there was a pingement on the religious freedom of the Hatterian brethren, that the regulation was a reasonable limit on that. So first of all, the province said, and the court agreed that the universal photo requirement was rationally connected to the province's objective, which was to ensure the security of the licensing system and the, reduce the risk of identity-related fraud. Second, the court held that the requirement was a minimal impairment on the Section 2 right. In other words, there was nothing more that the province could do, or less in this case, that the province could do without impairing the right. And finally, the Supreme Court held that the negative impact on the freedom of religion of the colony members did not outweigh the benefits associated with the universal photo requirement, being the enhancement of security and the integrity of the driver's licensing scheme. So to return to the burqa ban, I think ultimately it would be a matter of evidence. If the province is able to demonstrate that there is a security risk here, or there's some integrity issue in the province's regulations that requires individuals in those public roles to show their face, they may be able to rely on the Hatterian Brethren case. But again, I would just pause here to say the Hatterian Brethren case is generally regarded as an outlier in this area. It's not very clear why the court went this far to protect the state's interest. The evidence of a security risk, especially from a couple hundred Hatterians living on their farms and having very little interaction with the rest of the residents of the province, didn't seem as extreme as the province made it. But the Hatterian Brethren case may provide a roadmap to upholding the ban if it ever came to that. Okay, so let's say you were hired by a religious advocacy group like National Council of Canadian Muslims or CARE in the U.S. What do you think is a better approach? Is it picking and choosing your battles or defending the line anytime there is a freedom violation? Do you let a face covering ban go so that you can focus on something like racial profiling, which impacts more people? I think it's defending the line on every single case where there's a potential freedom violation. I think that really for three reasons. First of all, I think the law moves incrementally. I don't think we can expect sweeping changes from the law and from cases that move through the system. I mean, in Canada, for there to be significant change in this area, case has to make its way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. A very, very small minority of them do. And it's not only because they're not ripe for the court, but it's expensive to litigate. People move on. They don't want to be the public face of an issue. Sometimes there's policy changes that result in cases getting dropped. And so really from a strategic perspective, if I was the in-house counsel at a religious non-governmental organization, or if I was an activist in this area, I would want to defend the line on every single case, in part because a very small minority of those cases are ultimately going to get to the Supreme Court of Canada where there can actually be some real change, if that's what you're looking for in terms of the way the law has manifested itself. Second, I think that ultimately, every time there is a knock on one of our freedoms, and it's not litigated, not defended, not taken up, if you will, I think there's a risk that we undermine the freedom. We give excuses then to those people who are opposed to the freedom of religion or the freedom of particular religions to say, well, we allowed it in this case, so what's the harm if we allow it in the next? And I think the incrementalism ends up working in the other direction, which is that you incrementally start changing people's views about religion going the other way if you don't take up every case. 
And finally, I mean, I think religion is such a subjective issue. The court has said that it's a personal religious belief that is impinged here. I think you run the risk that if you only take on the big cases, the racial profiling or religious schooling cases, you run the risk that you don't give credit or pay respect to the really personal subjective beliefs that are being impinged by people or have their beliefs already impinged by the government if you don't take up those cases in every circumstance. Let me use the example of the Niqab case. I mean, that case was quite famous because for many people, I think, in part decided the last election here in Canada, federal election. But that case was about a woman who wanted to take her citizenship out wearing a niqab. And the government of Canada passed a policy or rule that prevented her from doing so. And she ultimately litigated this to the Federal Court of Appeal. And the Federal Court of Appeal said that there was no reason to prohibit her from doing so. I think one of the things that was talked about at that time was that there are very few women, at least anecdotally, that were seeking to take the citizenship out wearing their niqab. And so what was the import of this case other than to the individual who brought the case? And I would say, ultimately, there was a real teaching moment in that case. I mean, it, it educated entire swaths of the public about the importance of this belief it gave a voice to the women who wear the niqab, in part because this litigant was quite a good advocate. And I think it changed people's views of how we see women who wear the niqab or people generally who wear religious head coverings in our communities. Let's shift gears and look a little bit towards the future. With respect to religious accommodation generally, what direction are the courts going on these cases? There are some trends which point to a decline in religious practice and a general rise of secular worldviews. Can you see a future where there will be no religious accommodation? I can. And speaking for myself personally here, I was co-counsel on the Trinity Western University case, which is the last big freedom of religion case at the Supreme Court of Canada. This had to do with an evangelical Christian university in British Columbia that wanted to open a law school. Uh, the Law Society of British Columbia and the Law Society of Ontario refused to accredit the law school, which meant in practice that if the students graduated from that law school and wanted to get a license to practice law in either Ontario or BC, they would be prohibited from doing so. And the reasoning was that Trinity Western University requires its students and faculty to sign a covenant that affirms that marriage is a traditional Christian marriage and that students and faculty will not have sexual relations outside of a traditional Christian marriage. So in other words, prohibiting homosexual relationships and non-marital sex. Ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the decisions by the law societies to prohibit or refuse to accredit Trinity Western as reasonable. And I think in some ways, those decisions are a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. And I'd say that for two reasons. First of all, I think our Supreme Court is changing like our public is. I think in the 80s and 90s, when the Supreme Court was writing really important decisions on religious freedom, a lot of the members of the court were religious. I don't know how religious or how not religious the members of the court are. I don't know what their practices are or their faiths are. But in my view, just as society is becoming less religious, I have to imagine that the same demographic shift is repeating itself on our courts. And as a result, I think there is much more skepticism by judges about religion. And I think religion is becoming the subordinate freedom or right in Canada. I mean, our court loves to say that there is no hierarchy of rights. But if you read its jurisprudence, including a very important case, R and NS, which had to do with a Muslim woman who wanted to testify at a sexual assault hearing where she was the victim wearing a burqa or niqab, I should say, and the court refused to let her do so because ultimately what it said was that the defendant's right 
to face their accuser as a matter of the fair trial right was more important than the religious freedom right. I think that was the first indication from our court that the religious freedom is going to have a subordinate place in Canadian law. So ultimately, I think what we have here is a circumstance in which our court will over time move to a place where it becomes much more skeptical of accommodating religious freedom. And I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, I think People should be encouraged to practice their faith. I think if there's a decline in our society in terms of the religious practice, that doesn't mean that the court still shouldn't protect the minority of people who do have faith views. Ranjan, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Ali. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. A new episode will be out monthly. For guest profiles, episodes and show notes, visit www.musliminmoderation.com.